Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of April 6th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Bear Fire, northwest of Golden, 100% contained. Fire burned 7.5 acres, determined to be human-caused. By Corinne Westman for the Jeffco Transcript. Offsetting the Carbon Footprint by Deb Hurley-Robst for the Jeffco Transcript. Teens get a clue at Golden Library's Life-Size Board Game by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript. Hope House breaks ground on $5.4 million early learning center. 104 child care spots, all CCAP eligible to be available for Hope House moms, staff by 2024 by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. And Arvada City Council candidates file for district races. Some omit conduct code. Challengers square off against council members in districts 2 and 4 by Riley Dunn. And following up with various articles. Hope House breaks ground on $5.4 million early learning center. 104 child care spots, all CCAP eligible, to be available for Hope House moms, staff, by 2024, by Riley Dunn. About 100 teen moms will have a massive burden lifted off their shoulders soon. As Hope House Colorado broke ground in its new $5.4 million early learning center, which will provide all-day child care for 104 of the nonprofit's moms and staff. All seats at the Early Learning Center are eligible for parents enrolled in Colorado Child Care Assistance Program for families, and about 10 will be reserved for Hope House staff working at the, the center. The project broke ground on April 1st with a large crowd of onlookers in tow and is slated for completion in fall 2024. The project was initially planned as a long-term objective for Hope House, an Arvada-based nonprofit that helps teen moms achieve self-sufficiency through help with housing, transportation, and childcare, but was jump-started by a $1 million gift from the Ackerman Trust after the trustee Bill Ackerman died. Ackerman was a barber from Evergreen who was abandoned by his mother during the Great Depression. He went to live in a group home and earned a prosperous life for himself, but wanted to help others avoid the same hardships he went through. Quote, the donation moved it up by 18 months. Lisa Stephen, Hope House's founder and executive director. We had not planned to start that early. Stephen said Hope House has $700,000 left to raise, which she said they hope to achieve through grants and individual donations. Stephen added that Hope House prefers to be debt-free and currently has no debt on any of the buildings they own. Stephen also highlighted that Colorado is considered a, quote, child care desert and only has one child care slot available for every three children who need them. She said that quality child care can make a world of difference, especially for the young moms Hope House serves. Everything we do is based on building relationships and trust, Stephen said. Moms may be starting at 16, 17 years old, and they've never left a child with anybody besides family. And they're very anxious about that. So the fact that we offer an early learning program is critical for building that transition pipeline. Hope House currently offers a three-hour per day child care program for moms. But when the center is completed, it will operate from 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., providing more coverage. Maria, a Hope House mom, said she's been using the nonprofit's early learning program for five years 
and it's allowed her more flexibility in her life to achieve her goals. It has been very helpful in many ways while I have been utilizing it. I have been able to attend classes at Hope House such as self-care classes, presenting classes, financial classes, Maria said. It has benefited my kids so much that they have interacted a lot more with kids while been in there. They love all the volunteers and also how they do many beneficial things to help them learn. The groundbreaking on April 1st was attended by almost 100 community members, including Arvada Mayor Mark Williams and District 2 City Council Member Lauren Simpson. The celebration on Saturday is really a celebration for our whole community, Stephen said. We're so proud and so humbled to be a part of the Arvada community. Just operating Hope House out of Arvada has been a joy. Our community is so supportive. The fact that our community is coming together again to support and empower our teen moms is so important and special to us. We love being part of the Arvada community, Stephen concluded. Arvada Chamber of Commerce names 2023 Badass Women of Arvada. Local leaders, small business owners, first responders, recognized by Riley Dunn. The Arvada Chamber of Commerce recently completed its annual Badass Women of Arvada initiative, which recognizes women leaders in the community while celebrating Women's History Month by publishing profiles of over 30 members throughout the month of March. Some of the women honored this year include Apex Parks and Recreation's Katie Groke, Namiko Eshima of Namiko's Japanese Restaurant, Jeffco School Board member Danielle Varda, Arvada Police Department's Brianne L. Bellio, Jefferson County Clerk and Recorder Amanda Gonzalez, Foothills Regional, Regional Housing's Lori Rosendahl, and many, many more. Everyone honored by the Chamber received a spotlight on the Chamber's website and social media and is invited to a mixer on April 6th at Silver Vines Winery that will bring together this year's honorees and past badass women. Arvada is leading the way for women to be leaders, Groki said in her profile. I think we lead the way in empowering female leaders and giving space to new ideas. It has been exciting to see my hometown transform into such an innovative and progressive community, allowing all voices to be heard and take charge. The more diverse voices at the table, the more robust decisions will be made. End quote. When Colbert Callan, Director of Sales and Marketing at Footers Catering, was asked about the importance of highlighting the accomplishments of women, she deferred to her nine-year-old daughter. Here was her response. Because it's like a school. When a person walks in as a new student, they want to feel welcome and celebrated. They don't want to feel alone, Callan said. I couldn't agree more. Creating a space that celebrates and welcomes every woman's unique contribution to the world is a future I am proud to build toward. This year marks the third iteration of Badass Women of Arvada. The initiative began in 2021. Arvada City Council candidates file for district races. Some omit conduct code. Challengers square off against council members in districts 2 and 4 by Riley Dunn. Newcomer libertarian candidates for Arvada's municipal election in the fall would, if elected, bring party-affiliated politics to what has been a nonpartisan body. The candidates would also represent a shift in approach to issues like efforts to improve diversity and affordable housing. Libertarian Merle Hendrickson is seeking to unseat Councilmember Lauren Simpson, who was elected in 2019 in District 2. And in District 4, Libertarian Jessica Finsky has filed to face 12-year Councilmember Bob Pfeiffer, who was term-limited for at-large seats, but can still run in district races. Simpson and Pfeiffer contrast with their challengers as they have no stated party affiliations. Both see the council as a nonpartisan entity focused on collaborative governing. None of the current seven members of council have party affiliations. 
Both libertarians also stand out for refusing to sign Arvada's Code of Fair Campaign Practices, which governs candidates' conduct throughout the election cycle. Every other candidate for council so far has signed the voluntary pledge. Quote, I felt like it could potentially hinder my campaign, Hendrickson said. No, I will not be signing that, Finsky said, citing concerns about loose wording that could lead to misinterpretation on the campaign trail. Overall, the mayor's, seats, the mayor's seat and three council seats are up for grabs. Term-limited mayor Mark Williams is not running for a council seat. The Arvada Press will, this week, preview the district races. Subsequent editions will cover the other races. District 2. Candidates who have filed so far. Lauren Simpson, incumbent, independent. Merle Hendrickson, libertarian. District 2 covers southeast Arvada spanning north-south from 72nd Avenue down to 52nd Avenue, and east-west from Wadsworth and Sheridan Boulevards. Simpson said her campaign is inspired by a love for community service and a desire to complete work she began in 2019. I love doing this job. I really do, Simpson said. Serving the citizens of our city gives me, personally, a feeling of great purpose, and I feel it's a way for me to use my skills to better the community where I'm raising my family. I love being able to help people. I love being able to affect what I call active good in our community. Simpson added that she enjoys helping constituents solve problems. Some of the best moments have been when I've helped residents get their cul-de-sac repaved, she said. I helped an elderly resident get the power lines of his house fixed. I helped a senior with breathing issues work out an issue with their neighbor's illegal fire pit. These may seem like little things, but when they happen to you, they're big deals. Simpson cited as her proudest achievements the city's efforts to build and create 600 new affordable housing units, the Old Town Pedestrian Mall, Arvada's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and the gift card drive for Marshall Fire victims. She said, praised Councilmember Elisa Smith in the work. She added that she feels the city has more work to do. It's exciting about affordable housing progress, but it's not enough, Simpson said. I'm excited for the work focused on public safety and homelessness, which is made dramatically, which was made dramatically worse by the pandemic. And I want to continue looking at solutions that help Arvada families. Simpson said that she's engaged stakeholders on how to provide comprehensive, safe childcare for families. Simpson also worked with the State Redistricting Committee and advocated for Arvada to be kept whole in terms of representation at the state capitol, which, for the first time in the city's history, came to fruition with the redrawing of district maps. Hendrickson said he's spent most of his life in Colorado, save for a stint in Texas, and moved to Arvada two years ago from the Boulder area. He ran unsuccessfully for the Colorado State House in 2018 and recently moved to the Libertarian Party after spending most of his life as a Republican. He noted, quote, disappointing primary results and dissatisfaction with the direction of the party as, he's, as his reasons. Hendrickson seeks to provide a new direction for counsel. Maybe a fresh perspective from a different party, someone like me, that's offering just a total serious reduction in government as opposed to the Democrats who want to grow government and Republicans who want the status quo, he said. People might be open to that idea and see if things get better. Hendrickson is involved in Grace Church of Arvada, where he volunteers, and is involved in the church's acquisition of Faith Christian High School. He also volunteers with Special Olympics Golf and supports unified sports through his sister, who has Down's Syndrome. Hendrickson is against government regulation of churches. We know there isn't a separation of church and state, he said. He also was a strong supporter of the Second Amendment and reducing government spending, taxation, and affordable housing. 
the latter of which he says should be created by a quote free market. I think government has just gotten bigger and bigger, Hendrickson said. They claim they want to help the working person, but they don't. It's just things made things harder on us. I'd look for areas of spending on a local level I think are unnecessary and obsolete and get rid of them. The town I lived in didn't have public recreation at all in Texas, Hendrickson continued. No one seemed to be bothered by that. Hendrickson said he didn't sign the fair campaigning code because he takes issues with a clause that prohibits candidates from racist conduct during their campaign. I believe that what constitutes racism is different than what a Democrat believes constitutes racism, Hendricks said. Who decides if I've broken the pledge? What are the consequences? Hendrickson added that he would make diversity, equity, inclusion, work, and critical race theory, or CRT, illegal because he feels those things are racist. When asked to define racism, Hendrickson said that he believes in equality, not equity, and added that now white men are being discriminated against. I would define racism as negatively judging a person who shows good character or discriminating against them when they're the most qualified for a position because of their race, Hendrickson said. Now white men are being discriminated against because companies are targeting blacks or minorities or whoever, and they're not giving people the equal opportunity. He added, quote, not every group in every field has put forth the same IQ or education level or values or character or things of that nature. Every individual should be judged solely on their qualification. Race and gender shouldn't have an impact. Hendrickson said he opposes CRT in schools because it discusses, quote, systems in place of oppression instead of individual acts. Asked about her opponent's decision to omit the fair conduct pledge from his campaign, Simpson had no comment. I don't think Arvadans like negativity or divisiveness, Simpson said. I've signed my campaign fair conduct pledge and I have no comments on what other people do because we have to ask someone their reasons for why they choose to do something. I'm planning to run a positive campaign and I think we're going to have a really great election cycle this year because that's just the way Arvada is. Simpson also explained why she does not affiliate with a political party. She said she represents all of her constituents and believes many city issues do not need to be made partisan. This is a nonpartisan race, and as the mayor likes to say, there's no such thing as a pothole with an affiliation, Simpson said. We all have our values, and we all have our beliefs, and any voter is free to ask me where I stand. I genuinely do not care where they come from politically. It's my job to listen to them and help them. Hendrickson said that he is guided by his Christian faith and is opposed to personal attacks on the campaign trail. District 4. Candidates filed. Bob Pfeiffer, 12 years at large. Jessica Finsky, Libertarian. District 4 Councilmember David Jones is not seeking re-election, citing a desire to spend more time with his family. At-large Councilmember Bob Pfeiffer is running against first-time candidate Jessica Finsky. District 4 covers West Arvada, including Candelas and Leyden Rock. Pfeiffer said he feels his experience in conjunction with the city's rapid growth would be an asset on the council. In light of where we're trying to take our city and what we're trying to do, the council is still maturing, Pfeiffer said. I thought it would be good for institutional knowledge and continuity of the council to run in District 4. The only council members whose terms do not expire this year and are not seeking election are Lisa Smith and Randy Mormon, both in their first terms. Our council, we can agree. We can disagree, are agreeably. I guess you can say, Pfeiffer said, I want to maintain that and I want to be able to help grow future leaders just a little bit longer so they have a little bit more tenure under their belt. 
Pfeiffer added that decentralizing the police department and creating community stations, increasing funding to streets and infrastructure, and implementing performance-based budgeting within the city team are some of his proudest accomplishments from his time on council. He said the three main areas he would like to address if re-elected are affordable housing, inclusivity, and homelessness. Pfeiffer said that bringing affordable housing policies to council was a challenge in the early years of his term, but efforts have, been, have come to the forefront recently. Pfeiffer delineated between chronic homeless, which he said may carry a criminal element, and invisible homeless, which he sees as people who are thrust into difficult situations without the support network to dig themselves out. We need to spend the resources in the right area, Pfeiffer said. We've got to figure out a path forward on these two situations with homelessness, and I believe there's an opportunity to do it. And I don't want to prescribe it just yet because I think we still we need to still have this continued conversations around this topic. Pfeiffer has long li- lifelong roots in Arvada and lived in District 3 for 13 years before moving to District 4 in 2019. Since then, he's seen the west side of Arvada grow considerably and raise concerns about metro districts, which he said accrue debt and lack the oversight. We need to not do them anymore, Pfeiffer said, adding there needs to be some sort of oversight put into that that is outside of the developer. So either assign a city council member to sit on that board or assign a city staffer or let there be an at-large citizen that can sit on that board for some improved oversight. Finsky, a resident of District 4 since 2010, said the events of the last three years made her interested in running for office. She's a member of the Mises Caucus of the Libertarian Party, which seeks to elect candidates in local races rather than statewide or federal ones. Hendrickson is also a member of the Mises Caucus. She runs a popular Twitter account and associated podcast called Forest Mommy where she has discussed her campaign and qualms with the government. Finsky said that she hasn't been involved in much organizing or volunteering in the Arvada community, but previously served on the land trust board in Douglas County and volunteered at the stock show. There hasn't really been any, like, major issues with our city council, Finsky said. I really just want to spread the message to people that we don't need to be as reliant on government, which is funny because I'm trying to get into government. Finsky said her main concerns are police reform. She cited the 2021 police reform. She cited the 2021 Old Town shooting and the Brandon Valdez police excessive use of force case, along with lowering municipal taxes and curtailing government spending. She wants to change the Arvada Police Department's hiring practices, which she said could have prevented the Valdez and the police incident, wherein an APD officer allegedly assaulted a man accused of abusing his girlfriend. The city ultimately paid a $100,000 settlement to settle a lawsuit alleging abuse. They hired a guy they shouldn't have hired, and he went and, like, beat the crap out of someone, Fensky said, taking issue with the settlement. Asked about government spending, Fensky said she would work to curb the city's DEI work, Struggle sessions, she believes, didn't help the community. That's not beneficial to the citizens, Fensky said. Anything that's spending that makes the benefiting of the government more, I don't want to do any of that. Like, oh, we need to spend money on redoing the whole office, or, you know, stupid stuff like that, end quote. Fensky added that she will not sign the candidate code of conduct, because she does not trust the government to differentiate between right and wrong. Quote, there's no who decides what's right and what's truth, Finsky said. I don't trust the government to ever decide that. The words were just a little too loose. Like, you know, we live in a time where everybody's words can be turned against them. End quote. Finsky added, however, that she would run a fair campaign and will accept the results of the election regardless of the outcome. Pfeiffer called Fensky's messaging disruptive and expressed concerns with her omission of the pledge. It just says we're going to have a fair, open, transparent, respectful, civil campaign, Pfeiffer continued, 
And so it does disturb me that she is not going to sign it. Pfeiffer also defended the city's DEI efforts. He maintained that the city has a long way to go in terms of improving inclusivity. Bear Fire, northwest of Golden, 100% contained. Fire burned 7.5 acres determined to be human-caused by Corinne Westman. The Bear Fire, about three miles northwest of Golden, has been fully contained, the Jeffco Sheriff's Office confirmed April 3rd. Firefighters contained the fire to approximately 7.5 acres in the Golden Gate Canyon area. Investigators have confirmed the blaze was human-caused, but haven't given any further details. Jenny Fulton, a JCSO spokesperson, said the investigation is still underway by the Golden Gate Fire Protection District and the Sheriff's Office. The fire started around 6.30 p.m., April 1st, in the 4200 block of Bear Road. Initially, four homes were evacuated. Several others in a three-mile radius were on pre-evacuation notice, and Golden Gate Canyon Road was closed from Highway 93 to Crawford Gulch. No structures were lost or damaged. Firefighters protected one home, with Fulton explaining how they were able to do so because of the property owner's mitigation efforts. GGFPD received mutual aid from Golden, Timberline, Arvada, West Metro, Fairmount, fire districts, and other emergency agencies like Colorado State Patrol. Fulton commended everyone involved for their, quote, quick response, explaining how the Bear Fire was Jeffco's second notable wildfire in two days. The day before, emergency responders tackled the Hogback Fire near Morrison, which was caused by a downed power line. March 31st, Dry, windy conditions made a firefighting efforts difficult at the Hogback Fire, and Fulton noted how the fire season on the Front Range is now year-round. The Front Range has seen several red flag days over the last week, including March 31st, April 2nd, and April 3rd. Fulton recommended that everyone be extra cautious on red flag days, Characterized by dry, windy conditions, saying fires like the Hogback Fire and the Bear Fire can spread quickly under those conditions. Teens Get a Clue at Golden Library's Life-Size Board Game by Corinne Westman. Mr. Body was murdered this weekend at the Golden Library, creating a classic whodunit situation in the stacks. Was it Willy Wonka in the lounge with the rope or Cruella DeVille in the conservatory with the candlestick? On March 31st, the library hosted a life-size game of Clue for teens, where the 20 participants had the place all to themselves after hours. The teens played as characters from the Clue universe and other pop culture favorites. Staff members turned part of the library into the board game's famous rooms with teens rolling large inflatable dice to move spaces laid out on the floor. Several teams, teens hadn't played the board game version before, creating a unique introduction to the game. This was a really fun idea, 8th grader Gabby Stover said, adding that she was new to the game. Teen librarian Emily Vostros said the teen advisory board started planning the event two or three months ago, adding how the group initially wanted to do a murder mystery that evolved into a life-size clue game. Vrostos and her colleagues put the game together, pulling characters from the original board game, the Clue movie, the expansion packs, and finally, other fictional universes. The teens chose which characters to play as, from the classic Clue characters, Mrs. White, to Batman. There were enough players that the first game took more than an hour and finally ended when a team of teens pooled their resources to make a correct accusation. 8th grader Eli Monreal said there were more players than he'd expected and suggested having two games going simultaneously next time. Ninth grader Robbie Lauschman, who among those who'd never played Clue before, and said it was fun to watch people make accusations and solve the whodunit. 
Many of the teens playing weren't TAB members, saying they heard about the event from family members and friends. Golden's TAB is comprised of 12 to 18-year-old patrons who meet monthly to plan upcoming events and big-picture projects. has about a dozen active members and is looking for more. Participating is a good way to build leadership, develop problem-solving skills, volunteerism, and accountability, Brostros has described. The Golden Library's next teen after-hours event will be a Bob Ross painting party from 6 to 8 p.m. April 28th. For more information about TAB, TAB meetings, or the Golden Library's teen events, visit jeffcolibrary.org slash locations slash gn. Offsetting the Carbon Footprint by Deb Hurley-Brobst. Three students at Jefferson County Open School are working to offset their school's carbon footprint. They have set out to sell 750 tree saplings that can be planted throughout the area. And then in the next 50 years, the trees will offset 100% of the carbon produced to power the school building. The students have partnered with a nonprofit called Tree Plenish that helps students create and execute the program. Students Austin Martin, Abby Adler, and Jaden Best have organized the program, selling spruce, hackberry, and red maple saplings for $5 each. Saplings will be available April 28th, and they can be picked up, or volunteers will plant them for you. We are all getting an education at school. Abby said, but we are taking a lot from the environment. It is important to remember that we need to help the environments, even if just for one year. Austin said the community aspect of the project was important to him, getting together with the community and helping improve it. I love helping out and doing community service. The students have gone to businesses, fellow students, and everyone they know, asking them to get involved and buy saplings and they have sold about 150 so far. Now they are hoping the community will help them reach their 750 sapling goal. They said they chose tree varieties that will grow well in Colorado and should be easy to care for. If you don't have a green thumb, they still have a chance of surviving, Austin noted. Tree Plenish. The Tree Plenish nonprofit started in 2018 by students at a high school in Massachusetts who wanted to find a way to offset the amount of paper the school used in a year. Those students wanted to create a community event so more people would be aware of ways to be more sustainable, according to Lizzie Elsner, a co-founder and co-director of the nonprofit. We've gone from two of us doing a senior project to now we have about 25 college students running the nonprofit, Elsner said. Last year, we worked with 300 schools in 40 states. We've seen a lot of growth. Tree Plenish has moved from offsetting paper usage to carbon footprint. She said the nonprofit works with tree vendors across the country to get local trees for the events. Part of the process is helping research saplings native to the area, which grow best in the temperatures and soil conditions, she explained. They work through figuring out which saplings are best for the area. Elsner said, while the nonprofit helps the environment, just as importantly, it is working to help high school students learn they can make a difference. High school students learn that they can be empowered to change the world, Elsner said. There are a lot of issues we learn about and see in the news, the climate crisis being one of the bigger ones. This project is a really good way to make communities more sustainable. This is a great opportunity for high school students who don't always have an opportunity to use their voices or power to take actionable steps to help the planet. To purchase trees or donate to the student's cause, visit jcostrees.org. Study. One in four Colorado teens have quick access to guns. Community still reeling after Denver school shooting incident. By Markian Halleruk, Kaiser Health News. One in four Colorado teens reported they could get access to a loaded gun within 24 hours, according to survey results published late last month. 
Nearly half of those teens said it would take them less than 10 minutes. That's a lot of access, and those are short periods of time, said Virginia McCarthy, a doctoral candidate at the Colorado School of Public Health and the lead author of the research letter describing the findings in the medicinal journal JAMA Pediatrics. The results came as Coloradans are reeling from yet another school shooting. On March 22nd, a 17-year-old student shot and wounded two school administrators at East High School in Denver. Police later found his body in the mountains west of Denver in Park County and confirmed he had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Another East High student was fatally shot in February while sitting in his car outside the school. The time it takes to access a gun matters, McCarthy said, particularly for suicide attempts, which are often impulsive decisions for teens. In research studying people who have attempted suicide, nearly half said the time between ideation and action was less than 10 minutes. Creating barriers to easy access, such as locking up guns and storing them unloaded, extends the time before someone can act on an impulse and increases the likelihood that they will change their mind or that someone will intervene. The hope is to understand access in such a way that we can help and can increase that time and keep kids as safe as possible, McCarthy said. The data McCarthy used comes from the Healthy Kids Colorado study, a survey conducted every two years with a random sampling of 41,000 students in middle and high school. The 2021 survey asked, how long would it take you to get and be ready to fire a loaded gun without a parent's permission? American Indian students in Colorado reported the greatest access to a loaded gun at 39%, including 18% saying they could get one within 10 minutes, compared with 12% of everybody surveyed. American Indian and Native Alaskan youths also have the highest rates of suicide. Nearly 40% of students in rural areas reported having access to firearms, compared with 29% of city residents. The findings were released at a particularly tense moment in youth gun violence in Colorado. Earlier this month, hundreds of students left their classrooms and walked nearly two miles to the state capitol to advocate for gun legislation and safer schools. The students returned to confront lawmakers again last week in the aftermath of the March 22nd high school shooting. The state legislature is considering a handful of bills to prevent gun violence, including raising the minimum age to purchase or possess a gun to 21, establishing a three-day waiting period for gun purchases, limiting legal protections for gun manufacturers and sellers, and expanding the pool of who can file for extreme risk protection orders to have guns removed from people deemed a threat to themselves or others. According to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, firearms became the leading cause of death among those ages 19 or younger in 2020, supplanting motor vehicle deaths. And firearm deaths among children increased during the pandemic, with an average of seven children a day dying because of a firearm incident in 2021. Colorado has endured a string of school shootings over the past 25 years, including at Columbine High School in 1999, Platte Canyon High School in 2006, Arapahoe High School in 2013, and the STEM School Highlands Ranch in 2019. Although school shootings receive more attention, the majority of teen deaths, gun deaths, are suicides. Youth suicide is starting to become a bigger problem than it ever has, said Dr. Paul Nestat, a researcher at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Part of that has to do with the fact that there's more and more guns that are accessible to youth. 
while gun ownership poses a higher risk of suicide among all age groups, teens are particularly vulnerable because their brains typically are still developing impulse control. A teen may be bright and know how to properly handle a firearm, but that same teen in a moment of desperation may act impulsively without thinking through the consequences. Said Dr. Shayla Sullivan, a child and adolescent psychiatrist at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. The decision-making centers of the brain are not fully online until adulthood. Previous research has shown a disconnect between parents and their children about access to guns in their homes. A 2021 study found that 70% of parents who own firearms said their children could not get their hands on the guns kept at home. But 41% of kids from those same families said they could get to those guns within two hours. Making the guns inaccessible doesn't just mean locking them. It means making sure the kid doesn't know where the keys are or can't guess the combination, said Catherine Barber, a senior researcher at the Harvard University TH. Chan School of Public Health's Injury Control Research Center who was not involved in the study. Quote, parents can forget how easily their kids can guess the combination or watch them input the numbers or notice where the keys are kept. If teens have their own guns for hunting or sport, those too should be kept under parental control when the guns are not actively being used, she said. The Colorado researchers now plan to dig further to find out where teens are accessing guns in hopes of tailoring prevention strategies to differentiate to different groups of students. Quote, contextualizing these data a little bit further will help us better understand types of education and prevention that can be done, McCarthy said. KHN Kaiser Health News is a national newsroom that produces in-depth journalism about health issues. Together with policy analysis and polling, KHN is one of the three major operating programs at KFF. Colorado snowpack tops 140% in Goodyear. This is good news for the Colorado River Basin, no doubt about that, state climatologist Russ Schumacher. Reservoirs remain low. Story by Jared Smith. Freshwater News. Colorado is awash in white this spring with statewide snowpack topping 140% of average this week, well above the reading a year ago when it stood at just 97% of normal. Conditions in the American West are way better than they were last year at this time, state climatologists Russ Schumacher said at a recent joint meeting of the Water Availability Task Force and the Governor's Flood Task Force. In Colorado, we went from drought covering most of the state to most of the state being out of drought. Like other western states, mountain snowpacks in Colorado are closely monitored because as they melt in the spring and summer, their runoff delivers much of the state's water. A drought considered to be the worst in at least 1,200 years has devastated water supplies across the West. While no one is suggesting the dry spell is over, Colorado water officials said 2023 will likely allow for a significant recovery in reservoirs and soil moisture. The snow is deepest in the southwestern part of the state, where the San Juan Dolores River Basin is seeing a snowpack of 179% of average. The Yampa Basin in the northwest corner of Colorado is also nearing historic highs, with snowpack registering 145% of average, according to the Natural Resources Conservation Service Snow Survey. There is considerably less white stuff east of the Continental Divide in the Arkansas River Basin, where snowpack remains slightly below average, and in the South Platte Basin, where snowpack is just above average. The outlook for the seven-state Colorado River Basin has improved dramatically as well, with the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation in its March 15th report showing that Lake Powell is likely to see some 10.44 million acre-feet of new water supply by the end of September 
or inflows at 109% average. The Colorado River Basin includes seven states, with Colorado, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming comprising the upper basin, and Arizona, California, and Nevada making up the lower basin. And it is in the mountains of the upper basin, especially in Colorado, where most of the water for the entire system is generated. That Colorado is seeing such spectacular snow levels this spring bodes well for everyone. Quote, this is good news for the Colorado River Basin, no doubt about that, Schumacher said. Still, the drought-strapped Colorado River system will see little storage recovery this year, according to Reclamation, which is forecasting that Lake Powell will see storage at just 32% of capacity by the end of the year. It had dropped to just 23% of capacity last year, prompting ongoing emergency releases from Utah's Flaming Gorge Reservoir to help keep the system from crashing. Within Colorado, statewide reservoir storage this month stands at 80% of average, up slightly from this time last year when it registered 75% of average. Reservoirs within Colorado are expected to see a significant boost in storage levels. Colorado's largest reservoir, Blue Mesa, was just 36% full earlier this month, but is projected to receive enough new water this year that it will be 71% full by the end of the year, according to Reclamation. Flood Task Force officials said the deep snows, particularly in the southwestern and northwestern corners of the state, could cause flooding this spring and summer, especially if there is a series of hot, dry, windy days or major rainstorms. We are blessed in large parts because of our snowpack tends to run off in a well-behaved manner, said Kevin Houck, Section Chief of Watershed and Flood Protection at the Colorado Water Conservation Board. But I will say that I am watching things more closely this year. It's not just the presence of snow that creates our problems. It needs to have a trigger as well. The classic trigger is the late spring warm-up. And what can cause even more damage is when we get rain on snow as well. Freshwater News is an independent, nonpartisan news initiative of Water Education Colorado. WECO is funded by multiple donors. Its editorial policy and donor list can be viewed at wateredco.org. W-A-T-E-R-E-D-C-O.org. Local voices. Novelty. Moving into your creative zone. Unlearn it. By Christine Kahane. Last month, I talked about ambiguity the fourth in my five-part series on our relationship with time, how we respond to it in the forms it takes in our lives. This month, let's look at the final aspect in the series. What happens when you move successfully from ambiguity into novelty? If ambiguity is about having no focus or passion with too many options to choose from, novelty is the state you reach when you choose what you want to focus on, and your passions get ignited to get them going, all of them at once. For example, you just came out of the past holiday season, weathered the dark of winter, and are seeing the beginnings of spring. You're pulled into the daytime sunshine and able to feel how warm it can be. It's a novel feeling to have after the cold and short days. When novelty thaws us, we are able to focus on our passions again. You want to put your winter sweaters away, get the garden prepped for planting, start researching summer vacation spots. You're touring schools with your college-bound senior, taking on the long put-off bathroom renovation, cleaning out the garage, starting an exercise program, reducing sugar from the family diet, planning the visit from your relatives, finishing up a huge project at work, hiring new staff. You get the picture. Instead of looking at your list daunting or insurmountable, you're energized to get them all done now. You feel productive, gain a tremendous sense of accomplishment and pride as you complete your projects. You power through any exhaustion 
and that nagging, frazzled feeling because the powerful sense of showing up in the world can be intoxicating. Are you there? If you're not sure, listen to how you describe your days. Do you say things like, I'm crazy busy, or my life is insane? Look for signs that you may be becoming overwhelmed or anxious. Panic attacks, storm eating, sleeplessness, overindulging alcohol or recreational drugs, and watching TV or being on social media for many hours a day are just a few of the signals you may be too occupied to keep up the pace you've set for yourself. What's happening is a shift into overdrive where you are captive to the high energy and excitements of all the projects you have going on. And while your creative surges are filling your tank in some aspects, they are also keeping you from self-calming and unwinding, which leads to anxiety and overwhelm. Here are a few tools I use with my clients to help them self-regulate and move from novelty into stillness, the point where we began this series. Recognize one overwhelm pattern. One example is scrolling on Facebook four hours a day. Set an alarm and put your device down when it sounds. Stand up, move away from your device, and shake your body. Dance around. Sing. Walk outside for five minutes to break up the energy. Practice relaxation techniques that are repetitive. If you don't have one, one of my favorites is box breathing. Breathe in for four counts. Hold for four counts, breathe out for four counts, and hold for four counts again. Repeat at least three times. Welcome your empty mind. When a thought keeps cycling without a resolution, stop and thank it. Then let it know you will give it attention. Record a day and time. Notice how your mind clears. Christine Kahane, NBC, HWC, MCHWC, is a nationally board-certified health and wellness coach and owner of Kahane Coaching. K-A-H-A-N-E coaching.com, located at 30792 Southview Drive, Suite 206 in Evergreen, Colorado. For more information about coaching or to write in a question for Unlearn It, Send your inquiries to Christine, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, at Kahane Coaching, K-A-H-A-N-E Coaching.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786 7777.